Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 31. We're going to do something a little different before we get into the main part of our passage this morning. Our main passage is going to be John 17, but I have a few passages that I would like for us to read that prepare us for the wonder and the glory and the magnificence of John 17. John 17 is one of, if not the most glorious chapters in all of God's word. It is the greatest prayer that we see from the mouth of God himself. And so this morning, I want us to see a few places in Scripture that prepare our hearts for just how wonderful John 17 is. So we're going to read Jeremiah 31, and then we're going to be in Hebrews and Romans and John. We're going to go backwards this morning. So Jeremiah, backwards in the New Testament. So Jeremiah 31, to let you know the context of this, Jeremiah is prophesying to God's people. He is declaring the word of the Lord. And as we saw in Isaiah 53 in our sermon series, Isaiah sees a day in which a suffering servant is going to come and give his life willingly to set us free from our sin. You remember the last verse in Isaiah 53, hopefully, when Isaiah wrote that he bore the sins of many and interceded for sinners. And so Jeremiah, in the same way, is seeing a day in which a new covenant is coming. A new covenant will happen. And so verses 31 through 34 of Jeremiah 31, he, he says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Then turn with me to Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, verses 22 through 25. Context of Hebrews 7 is the, the preacher of Hebrews, which the book of Hebrews was a sermon. The preacher is giving us the picture of how Christ came 
to be the guarantee of that better and new covenant. So look at verse 22. He says, Jesus is the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And look at verse 25. Consequently, because he is our forever high priest, Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then turn with me back to Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. This is another wonderful chapter, Romans 8. It could be considered right up there with John 17. But Paul is writing in Romans 8 about the life in the Spirit. And how the Holy Spirit intercedes on behalf of God's children. It is a wonderful passage. It's one that gives us great hope. And one of the truths of Romans 8 is that the Holy Spirit, he groans on behalf of us and he intercedes on behalf of us. Look at verse 26 of Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those who love God. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now turn with me to John 17. All of those wonderful pictures of how the Holy Spirit intercedes for God's people. The simplicity of that power can clearly be seen in this one chapter of Scripture. And today we're going to do something A little different than what we normally do on a Sunday morning. Normally, we like to dissect and we like to go deep into a particular passage. Today, I want to give you just the whole truth of John 17. We're going to walk through it section by section. And we're going to see what God's heart is for his people as he is praying for his people in the moment of his death. The hour of his death. So we're going to see... Three big truths and then three application truths that come out of John 17 this morning. But before we dive into the text, I'd like for us to pray. And today I want to speak to you about the greatest prayer that the world has ever known. The greatest prayer 
that the world has ever known. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for John 17. God, we are thankful for the hope that we have because in your moment of death, when you would give your life for us, not only did you joyfully lay it down, but you joyfully sought us out. And you prayed for us. God, because you prayed for us, we know this morning that you are good. So, Lord, I pray that you would stir us to hope. I pray that you would speak to us powerfully this morning through your word. Lord, let John 17 be a passage that we would commit to memory, that we would teach our children and our grandchildren. Lord, may your word be magnified this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may or may not be familiar this morning with the name Belton Cooper. I don't know if you're a historian, but if you like to read World War II books, Belton Cooper was a soldier in the army during World War II. Belton Cooper had perhaps one of the most unique jobs in his role in the army. He cleaned the tanks in Germany after they were destroyed. If you get a chance to read his book, Death Traps, you will get to hear and read his first account story of what he did during World War II. I don't know if you knew this this morning, but during World War II, our tanks were not necessarily up to par in Germany and in other places where our troops were serving. Well, Belton Cooper would repair and clean tanks after soldiers lost their lives in those tanks. So you can imagine this was a very difficult, emotional, straining job as a soldier. Blood would be inside those tanks as men lost their lives as they fought for our country. Well, I worked for a company several years ago that did a video interview with Belton Cooper, and I got the opportunity to meet him for a few minutes and talk with him about his experience. Belton was a believer. He passed away recently, but he was a believer. He was a follower of Christ. And I had the opportunity to ask him a couple questions. And I thought, okay, what am I going to ask him in this moment? What do you ask someone who has fought for our country in this way? And I asked him this. I said, Belton, you're a believer. Was there a passage of scripture that just you meditated on as you served our country? And he said, without hesitation, John chapter 17. Because he knew that as he served Christ and as he served his country, that the Savior's prayer was what got him through difficult, dark days. He said, John 17, I remember his statement to me. He said, John 17 is the greatest prayer that the world has ever known. And that's true. Today we see in John 17 that Christ is our eternal high priest that prayed in his hour of his death. He prayed for his disciples, those whom he had been with. And he prays for his disciples in whom 
will believe in the word of his disciples. And finally, in this passage in John 17, he prays that his people would be one with him. He prays for our union with Christ. He prays that not only would we be one with him, but he prays that we would be one with our brothers and sisters and that we would seek to be unified in our pursuit and in the mission that he's called us to. So this morning, we're going to take each of these sections, look at some specific truths and some specific applications, what these truths mean for us today. Truth number one we see in verses one through five is that God's greatest passion in his world is his glory. God's greatest passion in his world is his glory. And there's two ways that we see this at work. His glory at the cross and his glory in eternity. The glory of heaven. These first five verses, imagine with me, if you will, you are a disciple of Christ. And he is recently in chapter 16, opened the eyes of his disciples and they have believed. It dawned on me in reading John 17 this week that his disciples have been with him and are more than likely hearing this prayer from their Savior. Look at chapter 16, the context of this, verses 29 through 33. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone. For the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And then John 17, when he had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. In his greatest moment of weakness before going to the cross, Jesus is most passionate about the glory of eternity. We sing songs that are deeply man-centered. Not here at Bear Cove, but perhaps you've turned on the Christian radio and you thought, man, that's just talking a lot about me. Church, we want to sing songs that are about the glory of Christ. We want to sing songs that exalt the Savior. In his weakest moment, Christ thought about him. God's greatest passion in his world is his glory. Now, I don't dislike the song above all. How many of you remember that song? I don't know if we've sung it here recently. God loves us. He loves his people. He loves his children. So don't don't hear me that I'm dogging the song. But there's a line in that song that I would personally disagree with. The line says, And you thought in your moment of death, and you thought of me above all. John will write for us that Christ is thinking about his glory above all. And it's when we see that, when we see his passion for his glory, is when our souls can find great delight. 
Because he did not create us for ourselves. He created you and I for his glory. John chapter 11, verse 32, we will see that God's passion for his glory is seen specifically in the glory of the cross. John chapter 11, verse 32, Jesus is speaking about his death. And he says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Speaking of his death, John 7 in the Feast of Booths, 10 chapters previously before this one, Jesus, John notes for us that he had to go to the cross in order that God would pour out his spirit for a people. We think about Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 8. Do you remember Peter's rebuke to Jesus? Jesus tells Peter, I must go to the cross. And Peter rebukes Jesus. And then Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. That, That is a powerful truth. God in this moment is most passionate about his glory. The second picture that we see in this, this first section is his glory and eternity. Look at verse five. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is confirming what John has already written in his prologue. John in chapter 1, the very first verse of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John knows that Christ was at the beginning. At the very beginning in Genesis 1, as God is creating the heavens and the earth, there is perfect harmony between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christ has eternally existed within the Godhead. And Jesus knows of the glory of heaven because he's going back to where he came from. He's going back to his father's throne. And his prayer for us in this moment as he gazes towards heaven and as he knows the glory of heaven, listen to this, is that we would share in that How powerful is it that the one who knows this glory would invite you and I to this glory? He says, this is eternal life that we would know Christ. This is Paul's life. Is it not the Apostle Paul? When Paul was converted, when he saw Christ on that Damascus road, from that moment on, what is God, what is the Apostle Paul's greatest passion? to know Christ and to make him known. Jesus here is saying that he wants his people to know him. He wants his people to believe that he is all sufficient. We see this all throughout John's gospel, but one place that would be specifically for this is John chapter four. Jesus with the Samaritan woman. He says, "If, if you knew who I am, you would never ask to drink again. And he offers the living water of eternal life. Jesus is passionate in this moment as he is praying about the glory of heaven. And let me remind you this morning that heaven is filled with two exclusive things. Heaven is filled with the glory of God and redeemed sinners purchased by the blood of Christ. That's what heaven's going to be. 
Heaven is going to be filled with two exclusive things. The perfect glory of God and redeemed sinners purchased by the blood of Christ. Do you know what we're going to be doing for all eternity? We are going to be singing the glory of our Savior. I'll never forget the day I sat in high school Bible class. I was a senior in high school. And my high school Bible teacher is sitting there pouring out his heart. And he's talking about heaven. And he's talking about how glorious it's, it's going to be as we're going to see the Savior and worship him and sing of his glory. And I'll never forget one of the students just sat there and said, man, that just sounds boring. And I thought, are you kidding me? That sounds wonderful. It's what we're going to do. And for 10,000 years, we're going to be singing of his glory. And then if we can get up from off of our face after that, we're going to still sing of his glory. And we're going to see him face to face. And friend, let me tell you something this morning. If that sounds boring to you, if heaven and the glory of Christ Sounds boring to you. Can I ask you to evaluate your heart? Can I ask you, are you truly in Christ this morning? If your heart is not prepared for eternity, perhaps you don't know him. Evaluate your heart. I assure you this morning, heaven is not going to be boring. It is going to be glorious. What does this mean for us as Jesus prays this prayer? Church, if God's greatest passion in his world is his glory, then the greatest passion of the church should be his glory. We we want to pursue the glory of Christ. We want to make him known. We want to reach people. And as we do that, His glory and knowing him and making him known is our greatest renown. The greatest passion of the church should be his glory. We think about 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whether then you eat or whether you drink, do all for the glory of God. Whether we serve you, whether we proclaim his word here at Bear Cove, whether we sing on Sunday morning, whether we serve our community, do all for the glory of God. So our greatest passion should be his glory. That's why we opened up with Psalm 115.1 this morning in our call to worship. Not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. We think about creation. When God created man, did you know that nothing changed? God was still God. God still delighted in himself eternally. God is passionate about his glory. Well, then the question becomes, how do we do this? How do we as a church pursue the glory of God? Let me give you five delights in how we do this. Five delights that we should be as a church. We should be a church who is delighting in God. We should be a people who are delighting in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We should be a people who are delighting in God. Why is that? Because God delights in us. First John chapter 4. He, we love him. Why? Because he first loved us. Our greatest delight in this world, it's God. Secondly, we delight in God's presence. 
God's presence. We see all throughout Scripture that God is the one who makes himself known to his people. Thirdly, we delight in God's word. We delight in his word. How do we know God? We spend time in his word and we see him at work in his word as he always speaks through his word. We delight in God's power. We think about Acts chapter 1 verse 8 that the promise of the Holy Spirit is he's going to make us his witnesses to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. God makes his power known to us and through us among the nations. So we delight in his word. We delight in him. We delight in his presence. We delight in his power. And here's one that we often forget. We delight in his people. Can I share with you that this is oftentimes where we, we, we feel a disconnect? I don't know so-and-so. I don't know what they're going through. I don't know what they're walking through. God delights over us so that we would delight together as his brothers and sisters. Don't you see this in the book of Acts? A people who are delighting in God and they're delighting in the fellowship as they gather together. So those are five ways that we delight and we pursue his glory. The second truth that we see is in the second section of this chapter, verses 5 through 19. And that is this. It is that God will preserve and protect his people as they persevere in the world. Let me say that one more time. God will preserve and he will protect his people as they persevere in the world. Look at, let's read just a, several of these verses. Look how many times that we see Jesus use the words give or gave or keep or kept. Beginning here in verse 6, Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Listen to that, gave me. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, listen to this. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. What a prayer. The same union that Christ has with the Father, he's praying that you and I would have that same union. Verse 12, while I was with them, again, here's that word, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. 
But now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus is saying that there will be nothing in the world that can separate his disciples from him. And not only that, but there's nothing in the world that can separate us, as Paul wrote in Romans 8, from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus knows this. He's praying for this. And this is consistent with Scripture, and it's also consistent with John's Gospel. Turn with me just a few chapters previously. John chapter 10. Verses 27 through 29. Jesus says that my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Brothers and sisters, this morning, seek Christ and see the hope that you have. There is nothing that can take away God's love in Christ Jesus in your life. God's character is not that he would give a gift and take it back. God's character is that when he gives a gift and we accept it and we repent from sin and we trust in him, he will never take that gift back. If you've been given the gift of salvation and you know Christ and you've repented from your sin and you're trusting him and you love him and you want to be used by him, brothers and sisters, that gift cannot be taken away. His grace is sure. His grace is sufficient. His grace cannot be taken away. Every drop of blood that he exhausted for you and I was fully for you and finally for you so that you and I would be free. Brothers and sisters, that's good news this morning. That there is nothing, Jesus says, that can snatch us out of the Father's hand. If you believe that you were being tempted by the enemy this morning and the weight of his temptation and his schemes are heavy on you this morning, God is keeping you and holding you fast. I'm reminded yesterday, we, or Friday, Laura and I went to downtown Cookville. And how many of you know when you have kids that anything downtown anywhere can just be frightening. So we went to lunch, and of course we went to my favorite spot, Crawdaddy's. And we went and we ate and we had a good time. And you know that downtown Cookville, if you've been there, it can be crazy on a Friday. We had a hard time finding a parking spot. Well, we finally got a spot and we walked out of the restaurant. We were done. And Mira Grace and I, she was holding my hand. And there were times as we were walking to the car, she was trying to let go of my hand. And how many of you know that grip? You're a parent, you know that grip this morning, right? You're not gonna let go. 
And she, she wanted to get away. She, oh, car, oh, car. And I'm going, no, no, no car, our car, our car. And I, would, I, would, I refused to let go of that tiny little precious hand. But boy, did she fight me at times. She wanted to go. She saw a kid. Ooh, ooh, play with this girl. No, no, no. Let's, let's not play in the streets. Let's get to the car. And I refused to let go of her hand. But boy, did she fight me. Brothers and sisters this morning, if you're fighting God and you're trying to let go, he refuses to let go of you. He refuses to let go of you. If you're in Christ and you love him and you feel like you just want to walk away, he will not let go. His love will hold us. Well, what is the application of this? That God will preserve and protect his people as we persevere in the world? The application can be found in verse 20. Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. What a powerful verse. That the same word that Christ gave his disciples is the same word that has been proclaimed throughout all of history and is the same word that led to our salvation. Isn't that amazing? That the same proclaimed word of God, and while we haven't seen Christ face to face, the same word that the Holy Spirit spoke to those first disciples has been spoken throughout all of history and has affected and brought his grace to us. That's the application. Because he will preserve and protect us, verse 20 reminds us that he he prayed also for us. The third truth in this last section of John 17 is that God desires his people to be wholly unified in their mission in the world. God desires his people to be wholly unified in their mission to reach the world. Jesus is doing something very unique here in John 17. Jesus is praying for his people so that his enemies would know him through his people. Jesus is praying that as we are unified with him and that as we are unified with the family of God, that the lost world around us will see a family, a family that is committed to him and to his kingdom. Look at verse 21, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Brothers and sisters, do you want to know why we see unity break down in the church? Is because we have majored in the secondaries and we've minored in the primaries. We have made church not here. We have made church about what I want, how I can feel. What are you doing to serve me when scripture says, what are we doing to serve God and to make him know? Church life, it's not about feeling good all the time. 
It's about making Christ known and pursuing his glory and pursuing him with a common mission. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. Jesus is passionate about the lost coming to know him through his people. Jesus is passionate about his people being one in him and being one together as the family of God. Let me close by sharing with you one of my, uh, one of the most incredible stories that I have ever heard. Brian Chappell is a professor in St. Louis. He has written several books on preaching, and he shares a story about two brothers in St. Louis, Missouri, who were playing near the Mississippi River. How many of you have been to St. Louis? All right. If you haven't been to St. Louis, how many of you have been to the Mississippi River? You ever seen it? The Mississippi River, oftentimes, the dirt at the bottom uh, can become very soft. It can oftentimes wash up on the shore because the boats are coming down the river to deliver uh, things throughout cities that are located on the Mississippi River. So like St. Louis, uh, uh, Baton Rouge, New Orleans, all these different cities that are located on the Mississippi River. Well, Brian Chappell shares the story of two young boys that one of the things that they love to do because of this, sand piles would begin to build up on the shores of the Mississippi River in St. Louis. It was a very common thing for kids to do. Well, one day those kids, and and parents didn't mind them going out to do this. It was a very common thing. Well, one day, these two young boys, they went to do as they had done before. They went to go play on the sand piles. And as they're jumping around and enjoying the sand, the bottom of the sand was very weak. It was very wet because it was very fresh. Well, the boys didn't know this. And as these two boys are playing, the older brother began to sink. The sand began to take him, and he couldn't, couldn't gain his traction back. During that time, the younger brother was trying to get him, and he was, wasn't strong enough to get him. The mom got concerned. It was around 6.30 at night. She got concerned. Well, I haven't seen my kids yet. They should have been home an hour ago. She called the police. And they said, do they go to the sand, the sand hills? And she said, oh, yeah. They went to the sand hills. The brother, the older brother, had, had lost his life. The younger brother was on top of the sand hill. The younger brother had pushed, the older brother had pushed the younger brother above the sand. And when the police got there, they said, where's your older brother? And he said, I'm standing on his shoulders. Brothers and sisters, Bearco family, it is time for us to see each other as redeemed brothers and sisters in Christ.
It is time for us to move forward as a people who love one another, who are encouraging one another. Because guess what? In the kingdom of God, there are no favorites. In the kingdom of God, we are all one in Christ. Ephesians 2 reminds us that he has broken down the hostility wall that was between us before he came for us. Brothers and sisters, we're all purchased by the same blood. We've all been adopted into the same family. So let's move forward, encouraging one another, exalting Christ, pursuing his glory, and let's see God transform our city for the glory of Christ and his kingdom. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the gospel. God, you you love us so much. And Father, I pray that this prayer would be one that we would always go back to. Lord, there are young people here this morning, and I pray that you would speak to them, that you would encourage their hearts, that you would help them to see that You are the only one worth living for in our lives. There's a lot of old people here this morning, Lord. And I pray that they too would see that you are the only one worth living for, your glory and your kingdom. Jesus, I pray that your prayer would be the passion of your people this morning here at Bear Cove. And God, as we sing, that we would remember that you did indeed you, you did indeed go to the cross for us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be you would you stand as we close? Let me if you turn me back on, I am so sorry. Nearly forgot the most important part. This morning, if if you need to know Jesus, if you would say, Carrie, this morning I have fought, I have wrestled. God's been dealing with me. I need to confess Christ as my Lord and my Savior. Would you run to this altar this morning? This morning, if you're hurting and you're broken, and this prayer from John 17 has spoken to you, and you would just like to come to this altar and pray, this this altar is wide open. If you're struggling with an issue with a brother and sister in Christ, would you come and would you settle it today before the Lord, and would you trust him for the healing that he can give you because of him.